So I just I want to talk to you about a message maybe you haven't heard, or maybe you haven't heard in a while, and that comes from Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like to invite you to open them up. And I just want to talk to you about, really, what is, what is the unfinished work of Christ? So we talk a lot as believers about the finished work of Christ, and we get that from Jesus' words on the cross, te telestai, it is finished. But what really is the unfinished work of Christ that we are to do? And really, I think this is a cool message to share with you guys because your church name is Missio Dei, the mission of God. So what is that mission of God, that unfinished work? So this morning, I want to take a look at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're just going to go through uh, verse 11. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This morning, I want you to think about what is this commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. What does that look like for you and what does that look like for me? What are we to do with Calvary? When we look back on Easter and, and we, we see the cross and we see the empty grave, but what is the next step? When thinking about this, I was reminded of a story I heard a long time ago. There was a London Times reporter who was reporting on the construction of the London Cathedral. The architect of the cathedral was the very famous architect, Christopher Wren. And as this London Times uh, reporter was going around, he went to different men who were working on the cathedral, and he said, I'm going to ask him some questions. And he could only come up with one question, and that was, what are you doing? So he went to the first man, and he said, sir, do you mind me asking, what are you doing? And the man said, well, I'm just putting a brick into this slot. He said, well, can you tell me anything else? And he said, nope, that's what I do all day. 
All right. So he went on to the second man. And he said, sir, do you mind me asking, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm earning a living. I have three children at home, and my wife's expecting a fourth. I have to make some money. Finally, the reporter went to the third man and said, what are you doing? He said, why, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build a wonderful cathedral. The difference between these three men is the third one had a clear vision of what he was doing. He didn't get bogged down with the details. And I'm convinced that there are a lot of Christians that really don't know what they're doing all the time. Maybe we think, well, we're just supposed to be different. And that's true. Maybe we think, well, we're supposed to belong to a body of believers, and that's true as well. But having a clear sense of vision, I think, is something that a lot of times we're missing. I've had the privilege uh, several years ago to travel to St. Petersburg, Russia. And along the river that cuts through the city, there's a really cool building. It's called the Hermitage Museum. It's actually six buildings. And it has the largest um, supply of artwork in the world. It's over six million pieces. If you're an art fan, I would recommend going there. Um, my wife is an artist, so now I have to be an art fan. Um, but at the time, uh, I wasn't, but I quickly became one when I was there. They have the largest uh, collection of Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Picasso in the world. And so traveling through the museum for almost eight hours was very surprised that I had barely touched the surface. But one of the really cool things is, in its collection, which is over six million pieces, I saw a lot of Van Gogh, Michelangelo, and Rembrandt. And I want you to think about something this morning. Suppose that you're in the Renaissance Italy, and you walk into the Sistine Chapel, and there's Michelangelo laying on a, on a board suspended from the ceiling, finishing the faces in the middle of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And he says, hey, you know, I'm really tired, been at this for several years right now. I just have one more face left. I would love it if you could finish it for me. Would you? If he gave you the brush and put it in your hand, would you finish it? Would you be able to? I don't know about you, but my wife might be able to finish it, but I would not. It would be pretty tough to finish that painting. The face that I would paint would not match the quality of the rest of the painting. And even the most unartistic eye, like myself, would be able to pick out the parts that I had painted and the parts that Michelangelo, the master, had painted. But think about the reality of what happens here in Acts chapter 1. Not the master of art, but the master of the universe ascends into heaven and he leaves his workers with this mission to finish his work. He takes the paintbrush from his hand and puts it in their hands, puts it in your hands. He takes the chisel of the sculptor and puts it in their hands and he puts it in your hands and he calls us to finish his unfinished work. And that's to build the church. That's to take the message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, New Lenox, Illinois, to the ends of the earth. 
I want to look at verse 1 again. You know, I think a lot of Christians talk about this unfinished work, as I mentioned. They talk about the finished work, excuse me. Uh, the te telestai, it is finished. Jesus' work is finished. He saved us. And that's true, but there's this unfinished element as well. So take a look at Acts chapter 1 again. In the, ver- in the very first verse, in my former book, he says, and the Greek word here carries the idea of two parts. So in part one, I talked about this. As you know, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but also Acts. So Theophilus, in my former book, in part one, I wrote all about Jesus and what he did. But look at the next word. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's very careful not to say all that he had done and now it's over. So part one, the gospel is sort of like just getting you warmed up. Now here's part two. And the rest of the book of Acts tells us the story and the continuance of this work of Jesus. As he begins this work, the book goes on and talks about the faithful men who carried on this work as they built the church. We are part of that story. And throughout the book of Acts, we see a special man named Paul, who in Acts chapter 20, being warned that if he goes to Jerusalem, would face much trouble, was unafraid. He was warned that he would be bound and put in prison and that he would suffer pain. In Acts chapter 20, 22, Paul says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. Is that your prayer this morning? Is that mine? And so this morning I want to just really talk to you about six ingredients that I think we really need to carry on this unfinished work of Christ. The first, the proper message. The proper message. I think it's pretty obvious that if we are going to finish the work of Christ, then our message better be an accurate one that reflects His. And so I want to take you back through the first 11 verses as we look at these six ingredients. In my former book, again in verse 1, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving, giving these instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, the thing that Jesus did continually was teach. I mean, over and over and over again. He taught in a crowd. He taught on a hillside. He taught in the upper room. He taught in the garden as he was being taken away. He taught all the time. And here, Luke is referring to after his resurrection, where he appeared for 40 days and continued to teach. What I want to stress to you this morning is we as a church cannot continue this unfinished work of Christ if we don't understand this. If we don't really get the proper message. 
The reason the church is having so much trouble in our age, I really believe, is because they're unclear on really what Christ's message is. Things like life and marriage, creation, are all under attack. They're all really up for grabs. What if a political ambassador came to our country and had a message from, let's say, Iran or Russia, two countries that we hear a lot about in the news, and he came all the way in to the Senate in front of the president and said, you know what, I, I kind of forgot why I'm here. We would want to know what his message is. What does he have to say? And I think the same thing goes for us. We are called Christ's ambassadors, the ambassadors of the king. And so what happens when we are meeting with people and we really don't have the right message? First Peter chapter 3 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. That doesn't just mean sometimes be prepared. That means always. You never know who may ask. You never know who you might meet. The Lord says in Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. And when we fail to have the proper message, and when we fail to deeply and intimately know Scripture, we cannot stand in a world today. The world is watching and they are questioning self-evident truths more than ever. And if we are unable to stand for truth because we many times don't know the message, what hope do we have to give them? I would challenge you with this. I think too often Christians are perceived as those lacking depth or knowledge. And I say that knowing that that affects all of us, including me. Sometimes the world thinks that we act and we do things based on emotions or feelings. I think sometimes they're right. So having that spiritual depth and that wisdom and that knowledge of really what God's message is, being clear and concise on that when being questioned, that's the first ingredient. The second ingredient, so if you like recipes, you'll like the sermon, I hope. The second ingredient for being able to finish the unfinished work of Christ is having the proper manifestation. The proper manifestation. If we are to finish the work that Christ has called for us to do, we need to have the proper manifestation. Notice in verse 3, Luke says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to about the kingdom of God. Let's stop there. Now Jesus knew it wasn't just enough to give teaching or have information and make sure the message was right. That was the first step. But secondly, there had to be a personal manifestation to which the apostles could grab onto when things got tough. In John chapter 20, verse 19 
It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said, as you guys said this morning. The disciples needed to see Jesus face to face. And John tells us in chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus performed many other miracles and signs in what? The presence of his disciples. So when they went out and they had the right message, but things got pretty tough, they were able to finish that work, to carry on that unfinished work of Christ because they knew who it was they were representing. They had a personal, intimate connection, experience, and relationship with their Savior. Third, we need to have the proper might. You could say strength, but I'm trying to stick with M's. You need to have the proper might. This refers to power. And look at verse 4 and 5. And it's really funny because as I, I guess as I prepared for this message, I, I, this just struck me as kind of odd. Because for three years, Jesus had been teaching his disciples, preparing them, making sure the message was right, making sure they really understood what it is they were going to be doing making sure that they really were following him. And then all of a sudden, he kind of tells them to just wait. Just wait. I know you've been preparing for a long time, but just wait. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling them, hey guys, do nothing. For right now, just sit back and wait, which is hard to do. Wait for the promise of the Father. We might be thinking, what is the promise of the Father? I'll read it to you. In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, if you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Jesus is telling them to wait for this Holy Spirit because even though they have the proper message, the proper manifestation, they're not going to get anywhere unless they have the proper might. In verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are only able to finish the unfinished work of Christ, the building of the church, really the reason that you're here this morning with the proper might or power, but we're going to stick with M's. So to go back to our artist analogy, we said earlier it would probably be impossible to replicate the work of Michelangelo. I mean, if you think you could, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. Maybe we could have a little challenge, but if Michelangelo stood back and said, okay, now finish the ceiling on the Sistine Chapel, that would be one thing. That would be hard, probably impossible, and people would not travel to Italy to see your work or mine. But what if he laid on that 
piece of wood underneath the ceiling hanging there with you. And he took your hand and he said, are you ready? Because I'm going to show you how. I might try that. I would buy into that. Because with the hand of the master guiding you, you can't fail. You can only succeed. Or what if it was David, the statue of David? Maybe he hadn't framed the face yet. Probably the hardest part. I wouldn't pick up the hammer and chisel, but if he was there with me, I would. So think about that in terms of finishing this unfinished work of Christ, this commissioning to spread the gospel, to build the church. We need that proper might, the Holy Spirit to guide us, to strengthen us, to empower us, to remind us of the truths that we know. Just like Michelangelo helping us finish a painting. The fourth ingredient, you need to have the proper mystery. The proper mystery. Look again at verse 5. Jesus says, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Some translations read, not many days from now you will receive the Holy Spirit. And when the disciples heard this, they must have thought, wow, the Messiah is ushering in the Messianic age. He's going to get rid of the Romans. It's going to be great here. He's going to reign on a physical throne. We're going to have another David. This is awesome. The end was coming soon. They were right. They were in the last days, but so are you and so am I. These last days have been going on for a long time. And in 1 John 2.18, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour. The last hour. It's a long hour, but it is the last hour. And the disciples were intrigued by what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit coming in verse 5. So look what they do. Luke says in verse 6, They gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And I love what Jesus says to them. I, I love it and I don't love it. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. So what he's really saying is, guys, I love you, but it's none of your business. I mean, really. That, my friends, is the proper mystery not really knowing when the master is going to return, but knowing there is work to be finished. I don't know about you, but if, if I knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, my Sunday would probably look a lot different than what I have planned. I probably wouldn't watch TV. I probably wouldn't relax. I'd probably skip the gym. I probably wouldn't talk to anybody. I'd be praying my heart out and then sharing that message with the people that I care about the most that I know aren't saved. So having the proper mystery, not knowing when the master is coming back, but knowing there is work left to be done, that's key to finishing that work, the unfinished work of Christ. Having a little fire underneath you 
to get you going, to push you, to challenge you. We need the proper mystery. Fifth, we need the proper mission. We need the proper mission. What is the Christian supposed to be doing? Verse 8, in the middle of the verse, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And interestingly, that is the overarching structure of the book of Acts. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or if you've picked that out before. The first part deals with the disciples in Jerusalem, sort of the home base, right? I come from the CRC. That would, the home base would be like Michigan or Holland and Grand Rapids, Michigan, right? The Dutch Vatican. That's all you're going to hear from, you're not even going to be thinking about anything else, right? But the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem. That's the structure. Then from there, it moves on to Judea and Samaria as the disciples and the first Christians begin to carry that message out. So maybe for the Dutch CRC, that would be like northern Illinois, um, Indiana, as they're kind of venturing out, right? And third, to the ends of the earth. We see at the end of Acts and in the middle that Paul and the disciples are carrying the message to Asia Minor, to Greece, even to Rome. So this message is spreading. But what is our mission? To be witnesses. You know, there's a story about a shepherd who lost some of his sheep. He was in despair over the sheep that he lost, so he decided that he needed to go find them. But in order to search the countryside for his missing sheep, he began to think, well, what would be the best way for me to find them? I mean, it's a big countryside. I might be looking for a long time. So as he began his journey, he encountered many other shepherds who were also looking for their lost sheep. They said, hey, what are you doing out here? Oh, I have some lost sheep. What about you? Yeah, I do too. Funny coincidence. So as they continued on, more and more shepherds began to join them. They said, we're all looking for our lost sheep. What do you think we should do about it? So a little bit connected with the timing of, uh, of your pastor's uh, trip, they had a missing sheep conference. And they all gathered together, and they bounced some ideas back and forth about why they had lost their sheep and what they could do to bring their sheep back. But they were, st they were stuck. They could not come to an agreement. So they created a subcommittee of shepherds. And the subcommittee was the Missing Sheep Conference subcommittee. And so they gathered together, and they decided that they would take a year to study the problem. The others decided that it would be best to build a nice big sheep pen. Maybe put some lights on it, some new windows, make it look real nice. Maybe the sheep would just come in. Some said we should, we should create some signs along this little, little path in the countryside that say, here sheep, here sheep, and maybe the sheep will come. So still some others decided that it would be outstanding to create a sheep rock band. And maybe the sheep would hear the music rolling over the hills, and they would, they would come and they would find their shepherds, and everybody could take the sheep home. Others said, well, you know, we really need to focus on the little sheep. So we have to have a great sheep program 
for our, our little sheep. And then the big sheep will come and bring their little sheep back, and, and we'll gather them all together, and we'll be on our way. Okay, you get the picture, right? I hope so. Jesus also lost a sheep. What did he do? He went out and he found it. Plain and simple. And while those things are helpful, and while committees and and conferences are helpful, what is our mission? The mission is to be a witness. And you see, in the court of law, when you are called to be a witness for somebody, to witness to some event or some, someone, the attorney will ask you in a court what you saw, what you felt, what you think about it. And this is exactly the truth found in 1 John 1.1. I'll read it to you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, and that which our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is what it means to be a witness. To go out and to find those who are lost. And to witness like you would in a courtroom to the Savior and the God who reached out and saved you and saved me. And if we look around us, Today, the world has put Jesus on trial, so to speak. They are peppering him with questions, shouting their doubts and their insults. And the Holy Spirit has empowered us, and Christ has called us to be his witnesses. So we are to witness for him. Not that he needs our protection, not that he needs us to defend him, but the world is watching. So what kind of witness will you be? What kind of testimony are you giving? Not just with your words, but with your life. Because whether we like it or not, Jesus calls us to be his witnesses, and you will either defend him, or you will be on the other side. There is no neutral ground. The Greek word witness as you probably know, means martyr. Marturias. Which means that your witnessing and my witnessing may cost you your life. May cost me my life. Persecution is coming, whether we like to admit it or not. But the question is, there is a proper mission. Will you be a part of that? Because being a part of that proper mission is how you are going to bring Christ's unfinished work to its completion. And the final ingredient to, uh, to our recipe is the proper motivation. The proper motivation. If you're like me, when you're asked to do something, you usually have to have some sort of motivation. It's like the horse that doesn't want to move until you put a carrot in front of its face. And then it won't stop moving. Why? Because it now has motivation. It has an underlying reason to do the action you're calling it to do. And we are creatures subject to motivation. That's how we operate, plain and simple. 
And God knows that we operate based on motivation. So look at verse 9 and the following. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go up. So what is our motivation? The master's returning. The work is not finished. He's coming again. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as that we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we must make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Our motivation, in a way, is, is hard to deal with. Because our motivation is that we will all be judged someday, whether you like it or not. We will be judged on a lot of things. But our actions will speak for themselves of how clearly, how powerfully we went after finishing the unfinished work of Christ. Whatever I'm going to do, I need to do it now. Jesus is coming. And we don't know how much time we have left. But we're all going to have to give an account for the time that we had. the right message, the right motive. If I could have one thing on my deathbed, it would be that I would be able to say with complete confidence and peace, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also all of those who have remained faithful and longed for his appearing. But in order to do that, I need these six ingredients. You can't get around them. I need to keep these in mind to finish the unfinished work of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 4.17, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, and you should fulfill it. So we have everything we need, the whole recipe. All we got to do is put it together. The only missing thing is the commitment to do those things and to take them into the world for his glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for these people at this church called Missio Dei, the mission of God. I pray that you would empower all of us through your Son, through your Spirit, to carry on this mission, this unfinished work of Christ, into a world that is longing and hungry for your truth. 
they're thirsty for a sense of belonging. I just pray your special blessing over this church, over their pastor, over their people, over their children, that Missio Day would become a light in a very dark world. It would be a city on a hill, a light that cannot be put out. And I pray that you would empower and encourage all of us to go out into that community, to be salt and light, to spread your word, and to finish your unfinished work. It's in your son's name that we all pray. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.